Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 28th chapter. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Most of you here have been around enough, been around long enough to know that there's a lot of different idiosyncrasies between different pastors. You've been to enough churches, you've had enough pastors here at Calvary to know that each one of us, when we're doing the job liturgically, <clears throat> does things just a little bit different. Even if we're using the same book, there's always just a little bit of different play between it. You're going to have a chance to see this when Joel Kluver is here preaching next week when I'm gone. Some people in some churches will say it this way, some will say it this, some will do the announcements here, some will do them there. And one thing that I've noticed as I've gone around visiting different churches and hearing different pastors is different pastors will do the communion dismissal differently. The words that I say up here, just kind of the words that were in my head because of my fieldwork pastor, Peter Gregory. Whenever I'd go to fieldwork during seminary, he would dismiss all the communicants by saying what I say. Now may this, the true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, strengthen and keep you in the one true faith from now until life everlasting. Depart in his peace. And we all know whenever it comes time for that service, in the service, regardless of what words are spoken by the pastor or what variation of what I just said, it's more than just an indication. Well, now it's time for you to bow turn on your heel and march out so the next group can come forward, but is intended to be a blessing. The words have weight, they have import, they have meaning for the service. They remind us of what just happened. They remind us, not of just the pastor's preference for what he wants to say, but they should remind us of what the Lord's Supper is, and, more importantly for today, what the Lord's Supper is a part of. One true holy Christian faith. Now, in our modern times, the words in my dismissal keep you in the one true faith, those words seem kind of presumptuous. They seem a little bit out of place for how we are taught to think and believe as modern Americans, right? The world and the culture that we are in right now, in this time that God has placed you and me to live on this earth, they are very relativistic. That is, we live in a time and a place where you're not supposed to believe in an absolute truth. You're not supposed to say things like, this is true and that is false. What you're supposed to do is say, well, if that's true for you, it's true for you. That's fine and dandy. If that's true for you and it contradicts, that's fine and dandy. And you don't have to reconcile them. You can live with the dissonance just as long as you're convinced in your own mind that what you want to believe is right and fine and good. To say something like, may this sacrament keep you in the one true faith, that flies in the face of the modern sensibilities that we see all around us. It'd be a little better, I think, as far as the world is concerned, is may say, may this the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ Keep you in your idea of the Christian faith, your version of the Christian faith, the Christian faith that fits most well with you. 
That's how we are taught to think and act. Truth is whatever you prefer it to be. It's what brings meaning and value to your life. That's what's true, and even to the degree to which you want it to be, the frequency to which you want it to be. But is that how things actually are in this universe that God has created and God has placed us into? Is that how God himself, as we see in his Bible, actually works and thinks and views the world that he made? The answer is a sharp no, and it's not even close. And to illustrate, I want to tell you a story from Old Testament Israel's history. Okay? It's one that we probably know. I think I've used it as an illustration before. And it's one of my favorite Old Testament Bible stories. The split had happened between Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. It had already gone their separate ways. And you have, as you see so frequently in both kingdoms' history, but especially Israel after the split, they had turned from the God of the Bible time and again. They had lived in wickedness. They'd lived in idolatry. They'd gone their own way. They'd rejected God's word, rejected their past, rejected the prophets. And so God punished them like a good parent, punished them with wicked rulers, bad kings who did bad things and kind of compounded the punishment. And we have, in 1 Kings chapter 18, a very bad king named Ahab. He was one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history. And most of the bad kings, they don't get their wives mentioned. Well, Ahab does because she was particularly wicked herself, and we know her name, Jezebel. They were, as a pair, personally awful. They were private individuals. They were bad people. And also, on top of just being bad themselves, they, in their capacity of leading Israel, led Israel the wrong way to rule false gods, wicked gods, idols, and demons. And they repressed the true faith in the God of Israel. And so, there was a prophet at the time, we know his name too, Elijah. And he wanted to prove the point that Israel's God was not Baal, which Ahab and Jezebel had encouraged the worship of, but Israel's God was the Lord, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created the world in those six days and rested on the seventh. And so he makes this challenge in front of everybody, drawing all the people there together on Mount Carmel, setting up two altars, one for the Lord, the God of Israel, and one for Baal. And he said, all right, we're going to settle this once and for all. Who is God? Baal or the Lord? And had the prophets of Baal try and call down fire from heaven to consume their sacrifice. And then after that had the Lord call down fire from heaven to consume his sacrifice. He set this up so very clearly that there could be no mistaking for anybody who was there witnessing that that day. Or anybody who heard a first-hand account of what happened. There could be no mistaking as to who the winner was, who the Lord was. That was his intent, to put everybody on the spot to see, is God the Lord true, or is Baal? If you read that, go home and read it, I encourage you, it doesn't take long. You'll see what Elijah doesn't do. He doesn't do what we in our day are so prone to do, especially pastors. 
He doesn't kind of poo-poo or soft-pedal the worship of Baal by all of the Israelites in the name of being winsome. He doesn't say, well, this Baal worship is bad, but it's just a phase, one that they're going to grow out of when they get a little older or something like that. And he doesn't make the stupid mistake that Aaron, Moses' brother, made back at the foot of Mount Sinai where he made that golden calf, made the mistake, of course, of saying, behold your God that brought you out of Egypt, but then also in the next same breath said, tomorrow we're going to have a feast day to the Lord. That is, what Aaron tried to do was bridge the gap, kind of have a both hand. Let's have a golden calf and let's also honor the Lord. No, Elijah does neither of those things, but he does there on Mount Carmel proclaim, the Lord, the God of Israel, is the one true God. And he denounces Baal as a false god, a demon at worst, an imaginary thing at best. And then in that moment, he let the Lord prove himself true. And you know how the story plays out. Prophets of Baal are crying out for Baal to consume the fire on his altar all day. They're just saying, do it, just show everybody, all these people that you are true, Baal, and nothing happens. And Elijah, in one of my favorite verses of the Bible, the Old Testament, starts making fun of them. Isn't it great? Whoever says you can't use humor in a sermon, I completely disagree with them because it's right there in the Bible. He makes fun of them, he makes fun of their God, and his best line is, well, maybe he can't hear you, Maybe he is relieving himself. He says he's going to the bathroom. (laughs) As nothing's happening, and he's not afraid because Baal is a false god. He's not going to do anything about it. And they give up, of course. And finally, Elijah calls on the Lord, the God of Israel, to consume his fire after dousing the wood and the sacrifice and everything around it with water just to prove that there was no monkey business going on. He calls on the Lord, and the Lord sends fire from heaven consumes the sacrifice and proves he is God alone. The thing is, no matter what age a person finds himself living in, no matter what the person's friends, family, or culture around him thinks, no matter what the majority of a people in a given spot think, popular opinion, no matter of any of these things, the God of the Bible is true. The Lord is God and he alone. And anything or anyone who stands contrary to this is false. And I say this in my sermon, and you add your amen now, and especially after we commune, every time we have communion, when I talk about being kept in the one true faith, we say amen not because we are glorying in ourselves personally, Like, I'm right, and everybody else that disagrees with me is wrong. Like, some sort of narcissistic exercise. That's not what we're doing here. We say amen. Yes, so shall it be to these things, because they actually happen to be true. It's what actually is. By God's grace, they have been revealed to us that he is the Lord, and his word is true. And by God's grace, we believe it. And make the confession with our lips that it is true. Non-communion Sundays and the words of the Apostles' Creed on communion Sundays and the words of the Nicene Creed and once a year on this magnificent Sunday and the words of the Athanasian Creed. Many people do believe falsehoods in life. They believe in a false God who doesn't exist like Baal. They believe that God does exist and maybe even in the Trinity, but they believe that he's indifferent 
to what we believe or how we live our lives. And some people, of course, believe there is absolutely no God. And perhaps it's different reasons for them. Perhaps they have different details for what they believe and why, but it's all the same in this. It's not true. It's not real. It's not reflective of reality. To believe in a false god, to believe in an indifferent trinity, to believe in no god, to put it bluntly, to have such beliefs are to believe in lies. And I ask you, who of you here honestly wants to believe in a lie? Who wants to say, I hold to this thing and it's not true? Do you like it when people lie to you? Who enjoys that, really? I mean, honestly, who really likes to find out someone represented something falsely and then you fell for it, hook, line, and sinker? I don't like being deceived. I get angry when I get deceived, especially if it's done willfully. The person knew that he was doing it. I don't like being wrong in that way just because I'm vain and I gotta be right all the time. I don't like being deceived because I never want to believe or do something that is a bad thing or a false thing to do. If Baal, or some sort of modern version of that false god, isn't really God, I don't want people to tell me that he is. If following after him, or some other modern false god, is a terrible thing to do, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go the wrong way. I want to be corrected. And on top of that, I not only don't want to go down a bad path, a false path, a lying path, I want to go down the right path, the true path, the path that leads to what actually is. And that's what Trinity Sunday is about in our church year. The God of the Bible, the Lord of the Old Testament, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as we have come to know him in the new. He is the one true God, and yes, Christianity is the one true faith. Jesus Christ is Lord. That is true, and by his dying and resurrection, he has brought to us forgiveness and eternal life. That is true. It's not just that we want it to be true. It's not merely that it's true for us, as far as that goes, but it is the cosmic set reality. It is the truth. So Christians, hold on to that truth then. Learn it as best you can. Try and understand it. As confusing as the Athanasian Creed is, try and understand it as best you can. And if ever necessary, be corrected if you find yourself going down the wrong path away from it. And do that so that you may always, all the days of your life, glory in God and his truth and grow in the one true faith until the day that that faith, that faith is taken away and replaced by sight. To God the Holy Trinity be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.